heads up to listeners. This episode contains themes of self-harm. Please do what you need to do to take care of yourself and anyone else listening. In 2014, a mother named Denise Kanan sent an email to two detransitioners. Denise told them that she was the parent of a kid who claimed to be trans. Denise was convinced that her kid had been brainwashed. Denise wanted to know how. And she thought that the detransitioners might say something that established doctors wouldn't because a small number of detransitioners see themselves as being ex-trans. So Denise and the detransitioners exchanged a few messages, but for whatever reason, Denise wasn't satisfied. To vent her frustration about the very existence of trans kids, she started a WordPress blog and hoped that others would listen. They did. Denise named her blog Fourth Wave Now, and it became a pivotal engine of the anti-trans hate machine. I'm Amara Jones, and this is The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality. Today we're going to tell you the story of Fourth Wave Now. Although not a household name, it's been a critical force in the anti-trans movement, specifically the sweeping attacks on trans kids. It's where parents who are hostile to their trans children gather to find ways to support each other in undermining them. Now, this sounds far-fetched, but sadly, it's true. Perhaps even more profoundly, however, Fourth Wave Now is where the idea of transness as a social contagion originated. The parents there believed that their kids were being brainwashed by YouTube or social media or their friends. Trans-social contagion has become one of the most potent ideas out there. It has spread far and wide, even to mainstream and supposedly non-biased platforms. But this is about more than flawed intellectualism. The idea of social contagion has become a vital piece of right-wing propaganda. Organizations that are part of the anti-trans hate machine ran focus groups to see the best way to attack the idea of trans people overall. And their research concluded, first make people uncomfortable with the idea of trans youth. And so they did. Fourth Wave Now now serves as a go-to resource for Christian nationalists anti-trans feminists, and ideological detransitioners searching for like-minded parents to advance their anti-trans cause. And they're not just influencing conservatives. What we're seeing again and again is that parents who consider themselves to be liberal, who even say that they believe in trans rights, are falling for these ideas and preventing their children from getting the care that they need. Parents like Jean Ogden, Her relationship with her daughter, Cam, was changed forever by contact with this blog. Jean and Cam Ogden live in a quiet suburb just outside of Columbus, Ohio. It's full of big brick houses with yards and two-car garages, wide, well-paved roads, and lots of trees. Cam Ogden is 22, a college student, and the youngest of three girls. Jean Ogden is her mom. She's an environmental engineer and writer. 
Cam's dad is also an engineer. And Cam's grandfather, Gene's dad, was a physicist at NASA for 35 years. All that to say, they're a curious, analytical, and deeply rational group of people. You might even use the word nerdy. Yes, my my husband's ringtone, I believe, is the Star Trek, um, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I can call them nerds because I'm a nerd, too. It's like the Star Trek, uh, their little whatever they call them that they carry around in their hands. So, yes, we're very nerdy, all of us. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think they call them uh, communicators. So I got along with Gene and Cam right away. Like most queer people, Cam was always a little different from her peers, but not in a bad way. Well, Cam was full of energy. That's the first thing. And Cam loved to make people laugh. She was extremely smart and ready to go from the moment she was born, always walking the line over what was allowed and what wasn't. When Cam was young, she started to realize that there was something different about her, that the way that the world saw her really didn't fit with the way that she saw herself. I didn't have the language yet, but when I was four or five or six years old, I stole a bunch of my uh, older sister's jewelry. But I didn't know what to do with it because I knew if I was seen wearing it around, that wouldn't go over well. So I just hid it underneath like my dresser and I didn't know what else to do with it. And I knew that I didn't necessarily actually like jewelry specifically or like their jewelry. I just didn't like that separation. And I didn't like the fact that, like, oh, that's a girl thing. You're a boy. You can't do that. Eventually, Jean found the stolen jewelry. Neither her nor Cam's dad thought much of it. But for Cam, it was incredibly meaningful. What struck me the most and what I remember the most isn't actually the desire. It's the shame that I felt because I knew in some ways that I was kind of being told that the way that I was feeling or the things that I was doing were wrong. Who did you feel was telling you that? I guess it would be whoever dragged the jewelry out from underneath my uh, dresser, which would have been one of my parents. And I remember like being like, okay, yeah, I took their jewelry, like that's bad. But why is it bad that I took their jewelry? Because when my sisters take each other's jewelry, it's not this big of a deal. So Cam continued in her own quiet but defiant way to express her gender. She liked to wear her sister's running shoes because they had I run like a girl written on the soles. And when she was feeling particularly safe, she'd wear dresses in the theater troupe that she was a part of. I got involved in musical theater at a pretty young age, like nine or ten years old, and I would be an extra as a little kid, right? Or like a part of the chorus. And when I knew people who didn't know me were watching the show, I would wear dresses, and no one cared. (laughs) Um, And so I just got to sort of do my own thing. Cam hadn't yet labeled herself as trans. She had no idea what that even meant. She just wanted to express who she was. And so theater became a kind of refuge for her, a place where she could play roles as a girl and feel more like herself. But then puberty hit, and Cam's safe space, being on stage, suddenly flipped upside down. The first real super physical reaction of puberty was my voice. And so I started to get cast in leading male roles, like Robin Hood in the production Robin Hood, or like the lead actor in a Western that I remember doing, or I was the king in Sleeping Beauty, and I just absolutely hated it. And so I noticed the changes. 
And I just fled from it because I just immediately quit theater and I quit doing really anything that was emotionally cognizant. Cam dropped out of theater and threw herself into activities where she wouldn't have to think so much about her body. And I got into robotics, um, which is something I'd already sort of been doing for a bit, but I kind of like threw my whole soul into it. And I sort of buried myself in a super analytical, super logical world that didn't have to deal with the real world or my body or anything like that. Cam was throwing herself into whatever she could to distract herself from the growing dysphoria that she felt. For a few years, ignoring her body worked well enough. But then, when she was 15 years old, Cam got a really serious concussion. And being forced to sit with her own thoughts in recovery made it impossible to ignore what was happening. For the first time in my teenage life, I wasn't able to distract myself anymore. I wasn't doing robotics anymore. I wasn't on my phone anymore. I couldn't read. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't do really anything except for listen to, like, audiobooks, sort of. I always laugh when people talk about, like, the effect of social media on transing your kids. Like, I was radio silent. It was the fact that I was alone with myself for the first time, truly alone with myself, with no distractions that I was able to actually parse through these feelings that I'd already sort of come to, but had avoided. Cam had always known that there was something different about her, but it wasn't until she was forced to sit quietly with herself that she could accept that she was trans. One day, while she was still recovering from the concussion, she decided to tell her mom. It was late, but Cam knew her mom was downstairs. So she went down to the kitchen and started to make a BLT. I went, I got out some like lettuce and some tomato and some bacon that we'd made like a couple of days previous or maybe just a day previous. And I put it all together and I sat down and probably had some cheese in it because I like cheese. I took like three huge bites of it. This was the first time that Cam was ever going to tell anyone that she was trans. The first time that those life-changing words would actually leave her mouth. Then she came over and she looked at me and she says, Mom, I have something to tell you. And when your child says that, your antenna goes up, a little worried. Jean watched Cam closely. She had no idea what was coming. And then I took more bites and she sat down and she was looking at me like expectantly. She said, I'm a girl. And at first I thought she was teasing me because she's Cam. And she said, no, she's like, I'm, I'm trans. And it was, it was a shock to me. I had never considered that or thought that was on my radar at all. Cam wasn't sure how her mother was going to react to hearing that she was trans. What was the look on her face? I'll just say I, I've seen the same look on a lot of people when they're looking at like a puzzle or like uh, a new sort of like intersection in their uh, town, right? Of alertness and a little bit of trepidation. Despite Jean's initial shock, Cam thought that her plan had worked because of how their conversation ended. I said, you know, we love you and we'll be here for you. You know, we'll figure this out together. And, you know, she put her little arms around me. And she said, Mom, I I love you. You're the best mom in the world. So far, 
It had all gone better than expected. With her mom seemingly on her side, Cam felt that everything would eventually be okay. But a lingering worry that Cam had was telling her dad. Telling him felt more emotionally risky because Cam was actually closer to her dad. So she hoped that her mom would somehow help prepare him for the news. But what Cam didn't know as she went upstairs is that Jean had deep reservations. Jean stayed downstairs trying to process what Cam had just told her. And I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this. It was more than just doubt, though. I've never considered myself um, homophobic or transphobic or any of those things, you know? But when it's your own child, things, um, things complicate themselves in your head. And I was afraid. And... They call it transphobia for a reason. And whether, you know, you do it in an outright hateful way toward other people or whether you're afraid for your own child, it's the same thing. Jean's transphobia, though unnamed, would color every parenting decision moving forward. And that would make the next few years of Cam's life very difficult and very confusing. Jean didn't believe that Cam was actually trans, so she began throwing up a series of roadblocks to prevent dealing with Cam's gender identity. First, she said that Cam needed to fully heal from her concussion before seeing a doctor, so Cam waited. Then, after a while, Jean said Cam needed to work on her self-esteem, so Cam waited some more. But in a spark of hope, Jean and Cam finally went to see a pediatrician. So the pediatrician at the time talked to Cam for maybe 10 minutes and then said, well, I think Cam knows what she needs and let's get her an appointment with an endocrinologist to move forward with treatment, which took me by surprise and also concerned me at the time because of my own attitude toward what it would mean to be trans. To be clear, what this pediatrician did was consistent with current medical advice. The consensus among clinical associations and experts, like the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and many, many others, is to evaluate and listen to a young person when they come out as trans. That's because the evidence shows that trusting trans kids is the right thing to do. But Jean rejected that. I had convinced myself that this was a phase that Cam was looking for a way to understand herself better, but that it would pass. Jean doubled down on her strategy to keep Cam from transitioning. Not only by seeing doctor after doctor and therapist after therapist, but there were also medical professionals who she resisted seeing. I chose not to pursue an appointment with the endocrinologist or a gender therapist or a clinic that would have known how to best care for her. And on top of this, Jean came up with yet another delay. She told Cam that before medically transitioning, she had to come out to her dad. Now, to be clear, involving Cam's father was not something that Jean had wanted to do originally But she knew that Cam and her dad were close, and that adding this hurdle would stall the process further 
Just the thought of revealing her gender identity to her father was terrifying to Kaya. I knew that my relationship with my dad was so at the time tied to the fact that I was his quote unquote son. And I was terrified of losing that without having any other support. After months, she worked up the courage to tell her dad who she truly was. But given her strong connection with him, the response was a gut punch. And he kind of said something along the lines of like, well, you know, everyone kind of goes through phases of this sort of thing. And I think he said at one point, like, you know, I didn't have a girlfriend for a long time. And like, so I didn't really know what was going on. I remember just feeling very sad. I remember just feeling very, very defeated because I was hoping... I don't know why I was hoping, but I was hoping that he would be like, oh, okay, yeah, this is a problem to solve. All right, let's, let's work on like, how we can help you be trans. Her dad's response, her mom's delays, and the numerous medical appointments, which went nowhere, took their toll. As the days and months went by, Kim's gender dysphoria was causing more and more pain. She began to hate her body, that her body hair was getting thicker, her voice deeper. So after all the stalling by those who were supposed to look after her, she decided to take matters into her own hands. I started uh, using Nair for extremely long periods of time in order to get rid of my chest hair, because I thought that if I used it for a really long time, I wouldn't, it wouldn't grow back. But of course it did, and led to even more damage. I got like serious chemical burns that left like scarring for a while. And I had to treat like a weird sort of infected chemical burn sort of wound, like secretly. Like many people who engage in self-harm, Cam told no one, including her own parents. With all that had happened, she no longer trusted them. As Cam quietly grappled with her parents' stonewalling and outright dismissal, another obstacle to their acceptance was thrown in her way. It was a new an even stranger rationale than she had heard before. Jean had learned that one of Cam's friends was also trans, something Cam wasn't even aware of at the time. She was like, yeah, I mean, now that you've come out to your dad, I've talked to your dad. And like, he also thinks it's a little bit like far-fetched that you and this other friend of yours would be trans at the same time. Cam's parents seemed to believe that being trans was contagious. This didn't make any sense. Her parents were deeply rational and scientific. How could they believe something like this? The idea had to come from somewhere. So Cam, like her researcher parents, started to dig. I ended up like going online and I posted a uh, Reddit question where I was like, hey, like my mom's like been saying this weird stuff about thinking that I was trans because a friend of mine is trans. And then 10 or 15 other people responded very quickly, just like, yeah, my parents do the exact same thing or did the exact same thing. And everyone who answered pointed her to the same place, a website called Fourth Wave Now. So that's where Cam went next. When Cam opened the website, the comments she saw from parents shook her. They were openly talking about how, like, they thought other trans people, but maybe not their kids, were, like pedophilic and perverted and disgusting and they need to protect them. It was such a hateful mentality where you're blaming other literal children for quote-unquote making your kid trans 
when you don't even realize that like all the other parents are blaming your kid for making their kid trans. And it terrified me. As Cam was looking through the website, she realized what fed Jean's stalling. For all these years, she had been coming to Fourth Wave Now and had been influenced by the ideas and conversations she had seen there. I was looking for ways for Cam not to be trans because I was afraid of what that meant. So I found a website which espouses this idea of kids being influenced by other kids or online activity, and then they decide that they are trans too. When you open Fourth Wave Now, the first thing you see is a quote from a poem, beloved by anti-trans feminist, called Diving Into the Wreck. The lines are superimposed over a pixelated image of a scuba diver discovering a shipwreck. Even at first glance, you can tell that Fourth Wave Now has no apparent ties to any medical professionals and that many of its members are opposed to their children's transition. There was information on there about feminism and, you know, boys are boys, girls are girls. In my head at the time, I felt like... Some of their arguments were suspect, but I also, you know, could relate to the idea that perhaps Cam was influenced. Parents on Fourth Wave now were using the phrase social contagion to describe what they thought was happening to their kids. It's the idea that kids who identify as trans are only doing so because of influence from friends or the media or even the medical industry. And Jean bought what they were saying hook, line, and sinker. This militant language made me believe that if I take her to a gender clinic, that they might make her trans. And that if Cam were not trans, she would regret it in the long run. After reading through the post on Fourth Wave Now, Cam worried that continuing to bring up transitioning would harden her parents' opposition. If I hadn't known that the things that she was saying and the beliefs that she had, if I hadn't known that they were backed up by this massive conspiratorially minded cult of chromosome worshippers, I would have felt more confident fighting back to advocate for myself to my mom specifically, and I think things could have turned out differently. Eventually, Cam stopped bringing up transition altogether. This website wasn't just hurting Cam. Fourth Wave Now was convincing parents around the U.S. to, at a minimum, delay the health care that their trans kids needed, or even worse, be downright hostile to it. The post and comments warning about a trans social contagion came from disaffected parents, many of whom had been estranged from their children for years. But unsuspecting parents like Jean didn't know that because Fourth Wave now successfully hides behind a veneer of parental concern rather than overt transphobia. That's why it's still so effective at convincing people like Jean that being trans is a social contagion that it spreads as an idea from one kid to the next, like some disease. Parents on Fourth Wave now had a theory that their kids were being peer pressured to transition. Julia Serrano is a writer, biologist, and activist. She's the author of Whipping Girl. It's about transphobia and is arguably one of the most important books on feminism 
of the last 20 years. When Serrano noticed this idea of social contagion creeping into the mainstream, she wanted to find out where it had come from. So I began just doing basic Google searches to try to find the first instances of this idea of transgender social contagion. And what I found was that it originated on a blog called Fourth Wave Now. From the site's earliest days, the parents there were coming up with all sorts of reasons to explain away their kids' identities. This is just a way for parents to, quote-unquote, quarantine their child, you know, take away their ability to access the Internet, to interact with friends as a way of essentially a, a form of gender conversion therapy of, of not allowing the child to be trans in the hopes that it will make that go away. But these ideas would have remained confined to an internet comments section on a relatively obscure blog were it not for the work of one woman, Dr. Lisa Lippman. Dr. Lippman would give this idea of social contagion the stamp of scientific credibility. I found a couple of websites where parents were describing that their kids became gender dysphoric out of the blue in the context of friend groups, often after being immersed in social media. That's Dr. Lippman on the podcast Gender, A Wider Lens. Before 2016, Lippman was a practicing obstetrician gynecologist and a relatively unknown researcher at New York's Mount Sinai School of Medicine and Brown University. And according to her, she'd never had trans youth or their parents as patients. But when she noticed that more and more trans kids were coming out on social media, Dr. Lippman thought it was suspicious. I started thinking, huh, this does not make sense based on what the world literature says on the prevalence of this of this condition. And somewhere after the fifth and the fifth, sixth, or seventh one, I decided that I needed to research this. However, there was a problem with her research. Rather than cast a wide net amongst all parents of trans kids, she decided to survey only the parents of Fourth Wave Now and similar sites like Transgender Trend and the now defunct YouthTransCriticalProfessionals.org. Her study was called Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria in Adolescents and Young Adults, a study of parental reports. And not surprisingly, it was deeply flawed. Not only did it have a biased sample of parents, but Lippmann had a pre-existing idea of how many trans kids should exist. She thought that anything above that number had to be driven by a social phenomenon. I looked at the social media around this topic, and what I found was something, you know, was really some very unhealthy content in which um, individuals were um, asking whether certain things or certain experiences meant that they were trans. And the, and the answer was almost universally, yes. <laughs> yes, it does. And there's really a push to transition as soon as possible, or you'll regret it. Lippmann labeled the social contagion expressed by the parents on Fourth Wave Now as Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, or ROGD. The name stuck and became the new X-factor explanation for more trans kids coming out. Essentially, Lippmann knew where to shop for the answers she wanted, and she got them. The fact that Lippmann's study was flawed ultimately led PLOS One, the scientific journal which had published it, to retract the piece and demand substantial Revisions. 
Specifically, Littman was required to clarify that her study was only representative of the parents that she sampled and couldn't be generalized to trans kids at all. Additionally, Brown University, based on the PLOS One takedown, disavowed an initial press release trumpeting Littman's research. But it was too late to undo the damage. Once Littman's pseudoscientific study was out there, it spread like wildfire because it sounded legit and provided a new catchphrase that people who were anti-trans could use to sell their ideas. Here's Julia Serrano again. It is kind of a genius move in a really bad way. It creates this opening for them to go back to using practices such as gender conversion therapies that have been proven to not just not work, but to actually cause harm to children. Anti-trans groups with names like Genspect and the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine push for a conversion therapy tactic called watchful waiting. Watchful waiting uses ROGD as a rationale to withhold care from trans kids. What they want is to prevent care in an attempt to squash out their transness. Since Lippmann's study, several other papers have been published debunking rapid-onset gender dysphoria, or ROGD, as a concept. But the idea has stuck, and even Lippmann herself has had staying power. She is now president of the Institute for Comprehensive Gender Dysphoria Research, a group that she founded. A big reason that her discredited research endures is in no small part due to the writing of journalist Jesse Single. In fact, because of Single, Lippmann's ideas would find their very first entree into a mainstream audience. Here he is on a podcast called Keep Talking. I found the accounts of some detransitioners, which are young people, or usually young people who transitioned and then regretted it. And um, it just seemed like you know, trans kids were everywhere and it would be good to have a big magazine article laying out what the process looks like for for determining a kid is or isn't ready to transition. Single published his article in a cover story for The Atlantic called When Kids Say They're Trans in 2018. The same year, Littman published her study. In the magazine article, Single spotlights the same idea of social contagion circulated by parents online a clear nod to fourth wave now. Because to me, it's pretty easy to see how, like, if you're a, a struggling adolescent and you don't know exactly what's wrong with you or why you feel so crappy, you could go online and find a pretty pat storyline that all you need to do to feel better is transition and to get on some hormones. And you see a ton of kids who believe this, and some of them may be right, but there there has to be a role for adults to sort of to gatekeep here. I mean, both morally and ethically, 14 and 15-year-olds cannot consent to their own treatment. When Single's article came out, it was explosive, especially online. With their ideas now appearing in a mainstream, even liberal news source, the right-wing media didn't hesitate to spread Single's work. Without Single and journalists like him, it's unlikely that the idea of a trans-social contagion would have spread beyond the confines of conversations amongst transphobic parents, pseudoscientific organizations, or Christian nationalist think tanks. Jill Skill-Peterson is a historian at Johns Hopkins who's charted transgender history and science in the United States. She says that there was clearly a before and after Jesse Single's piece. 
it was almost like a tipping point moment, right? Where you have this person whose whole brand is, I'm not personally motivated here, right? I'm just doing my job. And in fact, it's my job to be dispassionate. And the fact that Single markets himself as an unbiased journalist who's just asking questions allows him to effectively peddle these discredited ideas. To be clear, becoming a leading voice against gender-affirming care for young people has been great for him professionally. So, you know, and and I cannot say the last three years since this article came out have been bad for me professionally. It's been the opposite. I've been very fortunate. If Single was just engaging in thought experiments without any consequence, that would be one thing. But the point of the disinformation that he helps to disseminate is that it does have real-world consequences. This goes beyond cyberspace and intellectual cocktail parties. Jesse Single says that he is against anti-trans policies pursued by Christian nationalist legislators. Yet, his Atlantic story was cited by a group of conservative state attorney generals seeking to roll back trans medical rights in 2019. And ROGD, the social contagion myth that he's helped to spread, is cited by conservative legislators and their so-called expert witnesses all the time. Children should be free from either parental, peer, or cultural pressure. It is largely thought to be a social contagion phenomenon. Rapid onset gender dysphoria. Ultimately, though, all of this is about the harm that this disinformation wreaks on individuals and families. Individuals like Cam Ogden. More than five years after first coming out to her family, Cam decided that she was going to go on hormones. She was old enough that she didn't need anyone's permission anymore. The years of painful waiting were finally coming to an end. And immediately, she told her mom. I remember her just kind of being like, oh, okay. Like, and I was just like, that's it? Cam had expected more resistance, but there, surprisingly, wasn't any. Jean had grown a lot over the years since Cam first came out, and that growth helped her accept Cam's decisions. It was a complete tone shift from her because she kind of saw my being trans as no longer within her control, and she saw it as something that she was going to need to support me on, and... That was that. And ever since then, she's been extremely supportive. And I think it's hard to square that because, like, she was not supportive at all. She did not seek to help me with that at all when I was first came out to her and for years and years and years afterwards. But I think, just again, she has a lot of emotional maturity and she has the capacity to sort of come around and understand that, like, this isn't going away. This is me. And unlike a lot of other people, she was able to accept that. So... Yeah, I'm lucky that it didn't tear apart my family. If anything, Cam's transition has actually strengthened her family. When she told her dad a few months later, he wrote her a letter telling her that he supported her. And her older sisters, all the way on the other side of the country, were fully supportive. They collaborated behind my back and put together a charm necklace for me, and they mailed it to me. And I sent it to them. I sent a picture of uh, that necklace to them Not of me wearing it, though, of it underneath the dresser that I used to hide all their jewelry. And they said, you finally have something shiny of your own. When Cam trusted her parents enough 
She talked about how being made to wait to transition had hurt her, driving her to self-harm. And it was at that moment that Jean realized the depth of the mistake that she had made as a mom. And I, I should have known because I've struggled with mental health issues myself. And I know how bad and how dark it can get, you know, inside your head when you're alone. And Cam was traumatized by that. Cam was terrified that, number one, her body was changing. They'll call it watchful waiting. But watchful waiting is not a neutral decision. While you're watchfully waiting your child to go through puberty, which for most children is a natural, healthy, wonderful, scary thing, for a trans child, it's terrifying. We're not just talking about a kid who doesn't understand the changes in their body and is uncomfortable with them and may be anxious. Cam has talked about it's another whole level of discomfort. But for those of us who try to say, well, this was hard for me, it's a hundred times harder for your child. A hundred times. Now, Cam is using her story and experiences to make sure trans kids don't have to go through what she did. Cam is working to fight back against anti-trans proposals in her state. Here she is testifying in front of the Ohio State Board of Education and other agencies. Trans kids aren't new. They have been living in your communities for far longer than you realize, and they aren't going anywhere. If you think this is concerning, then you've likely fallen victim to the actual trend sweeping across America and pervading this room today, an epidemic of panic and misinformation. She's shown up to committee meeting after committee meeting, but anti-trans parents also show up to these same meetings. And for Jean, those anti-trans parents and their testimony sounded exactly like the old post she read on Fourth Wave Now. They are so entrenched in their belief that it's all gender ideology and, you know, the media and the doctors are all conspiring to make our kids trans so that they can make more money. And so these parents show up and they say, my child was convinced to be trans. And these parents still do not have a relationship with their children, many of whom are approaching adulthood or who maybe are adults already. They would rather cling to this belief that their child is wrong and has been led astray than have a relationship with their children. For her part, Jean is working to repair her own relationship with Cam. This healing between us has been her rising to me and not me changing myself to fit with her. That's a huge, huge reason that this has worked. I think everyone who's listening to this should realize that, like, She has been rising and bettering herself to be able to be in my life. I have not changed myself at all to be better for her, to have a relationship with her, because fundamentally, I just can't do that. I can't fit in that box for her. And she doesn't need me to anymore. Ultimately, Jean was able to break away from the anti-trans propaganda, which harmed her family and pushed Cam to the brink. But sadly, Jean's story is not a singular one. It has been replicated countless times, and the idea which drove it, 
that being trans as a kid is the result of a social contagion is thriving in America right now. It's being sold as some sort of a snake oil by an entire infrastructure that's bent on pushing pseudoscience in order to undermine the idea of trans people overall. The fact that it's finding so much traction right now shows that the contagion is not trans kids coming out. What's infecting our culture, body politic, and the lives of families is the theory of rapid-onset gender dysphoria. That's the actual pathogen here. But Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis once said that sunlight is the best disinfectant. That's why we have to expose these concepts for what they really are. It's the only way to neutralize them and to protect kids all across the country who are just like Cam. This episode ends part one of season two of The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality. Part two will debut on June 2nd. In part two, I'll be delving into how the proponents of rapid-onset gender dysphoria have realized their anti-trans dreams by moving beyond the misinformation of a single journalist to occupying nearly the entire media landscape. This realization of their strategy to manipulate the public and contort the entire conversation about trans rights is frightening in its effect. And it has massive implications for media, journalism, and our democracy. They are completely committed to disrupting, attacking the nuclear family, and um, they, they want to sow chaos. They're dominating online conversations and in turn seeping into the way that journalists are talking about trans people. Spreading like wildfire on the internet, on social media platforms, in private groups. She's found the button that can have the most impact, which is making parents fear for their children's well-being and future. And in doing so, she's endangered a whole generation of trans youth. Visit www.translash.org slash anti-trans hate machine for additional content, including videos, transcripts, and infographics to dive even deeper into how the Christian nationalist movement is targeting transgender people. And follow us on social media at Translash Media for even more anti-trans hate machine content. If you appreciate the reporting we're doing on the anti-trans hate machine, please consider donating to Translash Media. As a nonprofit media company, we want to continue our fearless reporting, and your support will help us do that. Go to Translash.org and click Donate. The Anti-Trans Hate Machine is hosted and executive produced by me, Amara Jones. But, of course, it would not be possible without a large team who have devoted more than a year and a half of their lives to this podcast to make it happen. Oliver Ash Klein is our senior producer, and Nicole Kelly is our editor. Our producers include Josephine J. McCullough, Anne-Maria Wad, and Mara Laser. Our associate producers are Vera B., Ren Farrell, R. Robinson, Nicole Richards, and Tyler Wilson. Fact-checking for this season comes from Stephen Crichton. This series is sound designed by Xander Adams. Zach Lanius helped with audio production. Our social media team includes Daniela Danny Capistrano, head of digital strategy, as well as Brennan Beckwith, our social media producer. 
The music you heard in this episode comes from Broke for Free, Enigmaniac, Gavin Luke, Guy Copeland, Martin Moses, Oh the City, Silver Maple, Taylor Crane, White Drift, and Xander Adams. 